it's always fun sitting in Washington when a, a cliche and a bit of conventional wisdom dies, because you could just shunt it aside and wait for it to come back again. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and this is the Editor's Roundtable. Today I'm joined by Yochi Driesen, managing editor of FP News and author of The Invisible Front. Also with us is David Sanger, national security correspondent for The New York Times and author of Confront and Conceal, Obama's Secret Wars and Surprising Use of American Power. Finally, we have FP columnist Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where she focuses on military history. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. So, David Sanger, this is our potluck podcast in which I'm going to turn to each one of the guests and ask you what we should be discussing, and then we'll discuss it. And this will show how quick we are on our feet. Go. Well, I think one of the most interesting things that's happened, David, in the past couple of weeks has been the collapse, at least for now, of what was John Kerry's long ball effort to try to bring about first a ceasefire and then a political agreement in Syria. You can't blame him for trying. Somebody had to try uh, to solve a problem that has left 250,000 dead, 4 million refugees, probably another 13 million people inside Syria who desperately need help. But the concept was that if you could gather the Iranians and the Russians together around a table, get them to agree on some big principles, you would then begin to start a negotiation that would force Assad and his representatives to speak to this disparate group of rebel forces. Well, that effort played out recently in Geneva and split up. It may or may not come again, come together again at the end of February. But more importantly, the Russians signed the document and then turned around and helped support a huge attack on Aleppo that is basically giving Assad back territory he hasn't had in four years. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. The Russians signed a document and then did something contrary to the spirit of the it's document? Astounding. And the Iranians seem to be doing the same thing with the Iranian nuclear deal? No, I'm not sure the Iranians have done that with the nuclear deal. On the nuclear deal, the Iranians have stuck pretty close to what the document said. The missile launches, which were a side thing... I, I said contrary to the spirit of the document. Spirit. Spirit, I guess I would agree with spirit. So did Kerry approach this wrong, or did he have to make this as an opening gambit in order to force the administration to take a much more active role on the ground, which we believe he and some others in the administration have been pressing for? That's an interesting question. And Corey, I'd like you to answer that question. After you answer the question, why is David Sanger such an apologist for the administration's Iran policy? Oh, I've got a lot of problems with the Iran policy, but I don't think that they violated the agreement yet. Yes. The way David set up the was Kerry wrong to try this or was he trying to force the administration's hand into a ground game? I don't agree with. I agree with the first part, which is, of course, Kerry should be trying to find a negotiated solution. But the reason it failed is because everybody knows the limits of our willingness to solve this problem. And so Kerry took, Kerry is negotiating as though he's holding the leash of a great big dog and he's not. 
them. Everybody knows the administration's not going to do anything. And so Kerry goes in with a weak negotiating position. Not only is it weak, it's known to everybody. And so he, he's being taken advantage of. And it's not Kerry's fault. It's the White House's fault. So, so what you're saying is that John Kerry is saying there, you better reach an agreement or I'm going to unleash my gerbil Barack Obama. <laughs> and that's the birth of a new internet meme. <laughs> it's just not plausible that, that John Kerry's negotiations in Geneva produce an American policy that is much more than the tepid marginal military engagement we have at the moment. And because everybody knows that, I don't think we're able to to turn the kaleidoscope in a way that I agree with David, Kerry is trying to do. It's always fun sitting in Washington when a, a cliche and a bit of conventional wisdom dies because you could just shunt it aside and then wait for it to come back again. And, you know, my... my <laughs> What a great lead in that one. Thank you. You know, but the latest one that we could shunt aside and wait again for it to come back is that there's no military solution. You know, we've heard for years that there's no military solution to Syria. There's no military solution to Syria. Turns out there may be one. It's just not ours. I mean, Russia may have found it. You know, they have, he has taken back Aleppo imminently. He's going to cut off supply routes from Turkey imminently. His, as David pointed out, his gains on the ground that he hasn't had in four years are expansive and growing by the day. So there may be a military solution. Just unfortunately, it's not the one we wanted or thought we could help bring about. I love, again, foreign policy students and fans out there, get out your pens, write this down, use this in your class. Yuchi has offered you one of the great lessons that there is of foreign policy. Clichés never die. They just hibernate briefly and then come back in some slightly changed form as conventional wisdom. Think cryogenics. <laughs> yeah, right. Think Ted Williams' brain. I was just going to say that. We have just seen Ted Williams' severed head. <laughs> it's a great image of yeah, yeah, yeah. well, Right. Well, I mean, is it still possible, however, that we are going to end 2016 with a deal in Syria, which has all the trappings that Kerry wants it to have, like there will be a transition and Assad will go in four or five years and he will be replaced via some process and has the trappings the Russians and the Iranians wanted to have, which is, yeah, call it a democratic process, but it better be our guy from the Alawites who's going to go and take this over. And that person will then take over control of a government that doesn't control the whole country and will not actually solve any of the big problems of Syria. Well, I'd say here that David is somewhat right, just to change well, the theme from, from the previous from podcast. From a previous podcast. I wouldn't be surprised if there's a next stage agreement to go beyond the Vienna agreement that was uh, reached in the fall of 2015. But I think that agreement will have the practical effect of cementing Assad in place for some good period of time. And there are a lot of people in the Obama administration, though they cannot admit it in any public forum, who think that that's probably the best single outcome because every outcome in which Assad is thrown out has one of two results. ISIS rolls in through Damascus and you lose great amounts of territory again or at least has a shot at it. Or the second possibility is that the country breaks up into small pieces and basically becomes even more dysfunctional than it is today, which is why 
four years after President Obama went out in the Rose Garden and said Assad must go, you're not hearing that theme very much. And that's one of the I love the our red policy. Lines. I love our policy, okay. It's like, you know, the devil you know? This is the devil dysfunction human catastrophe that we know is better than the devil dysfunction and human catastrophe that we might but get. But as you said earlier, sometimes sometimes the decision you don't make actually turns out to be more important than the decision you do. Well, in this case, it was because Obama, by not taking action three or four years ago, Absolutely. has cemented a legacy in Syria which will haunt anything else he does in foreign policy. Is that correct, Yucky? We've been binge-watching at home uh, this season of Homeland, which is fantastic. And to give nothing away... There's a part of it about Syria, a major part of it. In an early scene, a CIA analyst who just came back is asked, how is our strategy working? And he sits in the room and says, what strategy? Which is about exactly right. And it's interesting that the show kind of Here captures— at Foreign Policy, we get all of our deep insights into the way the world works from HBO. That's a cultural reference 20 years in advance of anyone I ever offer. Come on, at least it's current. But, yeah, but, but that's because your references are to, like, you know, Bugs Bunny cartoons and things like that. It, <laughs> but it, it's interesting, though, when pop culture gets something right that I think oftentimes doesn't get in the political discourse, hate to say it's nice in journalism, that, that, we, that we don't always get right. I mean, the theme of Homeland this season functions. No, no, I remember that because Seinfeld got the whole thing about the fluffy sleeve shirt exactly right. For those of you who can't see, David is wearing a fancy fluffy shirt as <laughs> we record this. A pirate shirt. But it, you know, they, what they talk about in the show is that Russia and Israel want Syria more. Russia and Syria want Assad to stay longer, and they want that more than America wants them gone. And when you've got that in balance, when you have countries willing to invest to either keep something from happening, or in the case of Israel, keep something from not happening, to keep Assad in power, you will probably win out against a country that's not willing to invest because we don't care as much. Okay, so second note for foreign policy students sitting there, Toledo State, thinking, if I only get this IR degree, I could be Secretary of State. From Yucky, very useful, okay? Balance of power often trumped by balance of will. You know, you can have all the power, but if you don't have the will to use it, it's not worth anything. And for this, Yucky wins the chance to shift the subject to whatever he wants to shift the subject to. Oh, this is fantastic. This is fantastic. <laughs> what I loved this week was we're finally seeing on the Democratic side, to my mind, debates that are becoming sort of interesting in a way that they have been on the Republican side for so long. For months, any kind of Democratic debate was Bernie being Bernie and Martin O'Malley just being there physically, taking up space, and Hillary being Hillary and nothing much happening. And now the debates are getting interesting. Like the last debate, to watch oh them, God. David shaking his head, glaring like, at poor me. Poor yucky. Poor yucky. The debates are getting interesting. But I'm, I'm genuinely, <laughs> genuinely finding them substantive and kind of fun, and they're, they're nasty, and they're beginning to have an edge to them, and it's, it's fun. It's like an election season that actually feels like an election season instead of three boring Democrats saying three boring Democratic things. And that, that's been fun to watch, with the scary exception of the fact that Bernie Sanders, when he gets a question on foreign policy, you could just see the wheels frantically turning, and he's got nothing to say. And it's a little bit scary that a guy who's up by 30 points in New Hampshire, running strong elsewhere in the country, has nothing to say on foreign policy. And to the people who want to vote for him, they don't, they don't care. Corey, you know, as, as, as somebody who watches the Democratic debates with a certain remove, react to what Yoki just said. I mean, first of all, is it actually interesting to watch Hillary Clinton, who will inevitably be the candidate, debating somebody who has less chance of becoming president than Yucky. Wait a minute. My campaign's dead in the water already? <laughs> no, no. I'm giving you the edge over the guy who will... Yucky's great electoral college 
strength is in no way impugned by the fact that Hillary Clinton is also running for president. So we need to leave him in the race, David. But yes, of course he's right. They are starting to get interesting. It's terrifying to think that the only thing that's different from the last Democratic debate, which was also at midnight on leap year on February 29th, is that Martin O'Malley's dropped out of the race. Who knew he could have such a big effect as to be a catalyst for a serious debate between the remaining candidates? Who knew that he would last as long as he did? Who knew who he was? Does his family even know who he is? I, too, think the most recent Democratic debate was really interesting. And I agree with Yogi. Let me just say, Yogi is exactly right. Finally. Nerds. Hopeless nerds. That it's actually really scary that somebody who's going to win the Democratic primary in New Hampshire knows absolutely nothing about American foreign policy. Because and, and Ted Cruz winning in Iowa, that's not right. scary. Or let's say that Donald Trump wins in New Hampshire. and you'll That's be where I was headed next, David. Does that mean I'm exactly right? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> Republicans have invested a lot in thinking that this is going to be a foreign policy national security election, and they are wrong because the fact that, you know, Trump, Sanders, Cruz, all of these guys know absolutely nothing about American foreign policy. Worse than that, are perpetrating stuff like carpet bombing as the solution to a terribly complex problem suggests to me that the American public could care less about foreign policy at this election cycle, and that what David Sanger closed our last podcast with is exactly right. People feel like the world's changing fast. They're anxious about the ways it's changing. Political leaders aren't helping them have a context and an understanding and a way to face change bravely. And so everybody's going off half-cocked. You know what I love about this? There is a bumper sticker in it. It's a perfect bumper sticker for the Democratic Party. You could see it against a blue background. It says, our ridiculous candidates who will never win are better than their ridiculous <laughs> candidates who will never win. Order them at foreignpolicy.com. They take all, all major credit cards. <laughs> That's right, David. Our institution. We could make them. We're gonna, we're gonna, right? We're, we're gonna monetize our cynicism. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that's what we were doing on this. I was about to say, I thought this was the old business strategy at FP. I didn't realize it was a new one. <laughs> yeah, the new hotness is bumper stickers. Well, it's look compared to the New York Times strategy of monetizing their naivete. I take <laughs> this anytime. <laughs> All right, Corey, for laughing that hard at my joke, you get to change the subject now. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to change the subject to the collapse of Europe. Because uh, that turned heavy really quickly. (laughs) This is getting very dark, right? Yeah. Um, It's amazing to me that the European Union has able to hold the Union together through the economic crisis first in 2008, and then the euro crisis, the revelation of just how badly Greece needed a bailout. And all of that, they managed to get themselves through. Cyprus wobbling, 
the Russians making a play there, right? And, and the good news of this story was Germany emerges as the leader of a united Europe in a way that does not terrify people. Angela Merkel's leadership was central to that. If I had been asked to bet money in 2010 whether she could move fast enough that markets didn't outrun her and collapse the euro, but slow enough that German, Dutch, Swedish, and other um, dour Northern European good government types wouldn't bounce Greece and others out of the European Union, I wouldn't have bet 20 bucks on that proposition. And yet she did it. And that that grace and timing, which she seems to have on Ukraine, on the euro, on so many other things, uh, got a real testing with the flood of emigres that Europe is experiencing. Instead of making a calculated political choice, Angela Merkel made a big-hearted ethical choice, and it is going to be her ruin. Um, her polls are dripping steadily, steadily downward. Wolfgang Schäuble begins to talk about foreign policy. All sorts of German conservatives are starting to angle their replacements to her, themselves as replacements for her. And we haven't even gotten to the hard part of their problems yet. So I think we are going to very soon see, wait for it, Europe in crisis. Well, that's never happened before. I know it's the oldest refrain in the Western world, but I am now finally convinced that Merkel tottering, that Britain trying to decide whether it's too onerous to be you know, a member of the European Union that opts out of most of the things that the European Union does as a centralizing function. I really do think this time the wheels are coming off the cart. I have to, I have to say, by the way, I have to apologize to our listeners. <laughs> For me? For Kurt, because she obviously made one of those cheap plays to build up listenership of this kind of podcast by working in the name Wolfgang Schäuble. Because that drives people to podcasts like this. And, okay. and or to Google. I know you asked yeah. me last for a reason, David, and yet other good topics had already been taken. I want to point out that she's done something else. She's gotten Wolfgang Schobel and Ted Williams into the same podcast. That's why she's always on this podcast. <laughs> Okay, how uncool is Corey? Yucky. Oof. <laughs> Being new to talking to Corey, I'm going to punt that one like a football. Okay, um, well, having known Corey for 25 years, I'll tell you, she's sitting in Stanford doing this podcast, and we're here. What more do I need to explain to you? Corey Shockey <laughs> is cool. She is one of the coolest people I know. Although I do like that, you know, obviously anybody gambling on Germany would, of course, gamble that a German leader would fall because of being too warm-hearted, and Germany would be in crisis because it's too humanitarian. Like it's been throughout well, history. Well, let's just go and think back on the great warm hearted oh, that, you know, that party animal, Frederick the Great. The welcome mats, just the, it's been the history of Germany. Well, Neuschwanstein, you know, you have Ludwig, and Neuschwanstein is actually Disney World, right? So, 
you know, there is something warm and fuzzy back there. And Catherine the Great used to throw a good party before she left Prussia. For... Okay, but see, that is my point, that this is a new Germany. It had Merkel had exemplified a gentle kind of German leadership that didn't scare horses in the street or kill a bunch of people. That was a good thing for Europe. And because she made a choice that wasn't mild, moderate, but was a choice about values, instead of a cynical political choice, it's going to be her downfall. And that's going to have spillover effects onto the euro, onto Brexit, onto the European Union's ability to deal with recidivism in Poland, Hungary, the Czech Republic, to deal with the challenges Russia is throwing down, and to be a partner to the United States. I'd love to, I'd love the way she weaves the sentence. She throws in Brexit, assumes everybody knows what it is, throws in recidivism, which is a good academic word, and then talks about what Russia throws down. You know what I'm saying? There's a certain kind of... They teach you this stuff at Hoover. At, at, <laughs> Hoover, by the way, folks, is an institution at Stanford, not just a vacuum cleaner company. <laughs> Yucky. When Corey was speaking, your eyes lit up because she mentioned gambling. <laughs> 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 and I and I immediately thought, if anybody has lost money betting on Angela Merkel's policies, it's you. You've probably found some place online where you can <laughs> you, you you can bet on the you know the, the Bundesbank's next move or you know. Whether... God, that'd be the nerdiest bet, <laughs> right? Ever. <laughs> um, I have money on the U.S. elections, but do you? I do. Uh, uh, tell us. Uh, sure. no, odds for Rubio early on were five to one against. Yeah. That's easy money. I so thought. you took that bet. Took that one easily. You're going to win. Uh, odds on Hillary winning at least 35 states in the Democratic primary was like money being given to you free. So took that one. Uh, <laughs> hedged by taking Rubio beating Hillary. So that will be because the odds on that were 10 to one. Wow. You could win the trifecta on this. So that one. Oh, mm, a hat trick. If next time, you, if when you see me in December, if I'm wearing a very, very fancy David Rothkopf-esque suit, it's because I hit all three. Wow. Wow. That's something. Well, let's play a little game here, okay? And we've never played this game before, but it could lead us to bringing Yucky back. David and Corey, I would like you to talk about things that could happen this year, and Yucky will give you the odds on that happening. Okay. Let me let me throw you one. Uh, Yucky, that um, in the midst of the presidential election, the Chinese throw the long ball and decide that they're going to make some kind of territorial claim, some kind of stake, where they think that this is the moment to go do it while Barack Obama is still in and the Americans are distracted by the election. If you set the gambling line for that at 90 percent, I would take the way over, way over on that one. Wow. Those of you who are sitting there going, wait a minute, I could set up a betting pool on this and get all that nerd cash. <laughs> go ahead, Corey. Let's see. Uh, that... John Kerry has a successful negotiation over Syria to get a ceasefire. God, these are like gimmies. Set that at 10% and take the under. (laughs) 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 That a member of the Clinton team is indicted before the election for the email scandal. Now we're getting good. Let's set the line for that one at 50%. Narrowly take the under. Narrowly. Mm, Come on, David. I think I'm with Yogi. I, I don't think that uh, I don't think you're going to see 
serious indictments in this case. Serious indictments. Yeah. However, there will be a few lighthearted indictments. indictments that yeah. Take, yeah. Yeah. I don't think you're going to see indictments at all. Okay. okay. Yeah. Uh, likelihood of a brokered Republican convention. Ooh. Another good one. 50% narrowly take the under. 10% take the under. David? <laughs> I hate to be in agreement with uh, Rothkoff, but take percent, 10% and go even further <laughs> under than he has. <laughs> all right. Pick something else that you want to – because Yucky is the arbiter of all things Okay. Here. Yucky, a significant cyber attack on the United States that is big enough and long enough that it actually has an effect on the presidential election. On – the United States is in a company in like a or on infrastructure, on communication systems, on our uh, power grid, any of those things that we do during the podcast to try to scare everybody out there who's listening. Sixty-five <laughs> uh, percent taking the over narrowly, in part because, as you mentioned a while back, we now think in the case of Ukraine when their power grid was taken down that we are seeing for the first time a capability people had worried about for a long time, that you could hack a power grid and bring it down. We've seen now that you can. I will take the over. Cyber expert Sanger nods sagely. Corey? Let's see. Probability that... Sanger catches anything on annual fishing trip to Alaska. I've got it. <laughs> uh, probability that the Congress takes up the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal while Barack Obama remains president. Nerds are sitting yeah. at the edge of their seat. Oh, my God. The yeah. TPP line. Come on, man. Look at dollar, dollar bills flying into a pile. had a column on this subject in foreign policy three days ago. Yeah. Well, that proves that it's mainstream. Yeah, go ahead. 75% and take the over. And I will set one now for myself, which okay. is me being personally affected by world events. 100% because my wife and I, who are expecting our second child, we're supposed to go to the Bahamas. Yay! Thank you, thank you. And we Good cannot go because of Zika. So we are going to not have our only chance to take a trip pre-birth because of the Zika virus. So thank you, mosquitoes. Look, so long as young Barack Driesen is healthy. <laughs> <laughs> Corey, I want, you, I want you to know that... David has actually gone too far this time. He offended my manhood here by suggesting I hadn't caught anything in Alaska. So I'm handing him a photograph of a salmon that weighs about 35 pounds so that he can insult it during the course of our podcast. There's a picture of David, David saying our- David, David, must I always be your strategic counsel? You are wrong to hand him the photograph. You need to mail him- the fish. A slice of it that has been defrosted several days. Listen, first of all, Sanger just showed me a picture of him holding one of those plastic fish that sinks down by the water. <laughs> Come on, didn't you see the Godfather Sanger? The head of that fish ought to be in David Rothkopf's bed. <laughs> We can arrange for that, yeah. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it is very clear that, once again, I have lost control of the ER podcast. It's what you are hoping for. All of you are playing the drinking game where you take a drink every time this thing descends further into chaos. Are all insensible now, uh, making you quite akin to our guests today. Thank you to David Sanger. Thank you to Yucky Driesen. 
Thank you to Corey Shockey. And we look forward to having you join us on another episode of the ER sometime really soon. You have been listening to Foreign Policies, the ER podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe, please visit foreignpolicy.com. And thank you very much for joining us.